Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. As the song says, his truth abideth still, his truth remains, it does not come to an end. And so with that, we turn to Psalm 18 tonight, Psalm 18, um, going to continue to look at what we began in the last two weeks, looking at all that Scripture says about itself, all that Scripture is, um, all that the doctrine of Scripture tells us about what God's Word is. And so as His truth abides still, we come tonight to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, Psalm 18, we're going to be just in verse 30 tonight, one verse, um, talking about the, the fact that Scripture has no errors. Scripture does not have errors within it. Um, I wonder, have you ever been caught in a lie? Um, when I was younger, I was at a New Year's Eve party. Um, my mom worked at our local bowling alley for, I think, 15 years or so, and so um, she was involved in getting leagues going and, and a lot of different things like that. And every year they had, a, uh, they, had a, they had a cosmic bowling New Year's Eve party. And so they would, you know, turn the lights out, the disco ball would start, the lights are going, the music's playing, and... Um, there all night until New Year's, you know, chimes at midnight, and uh, I was probably fourth grade, I don't really remember, but um, uh, I remember that night, I, uh, those tiny little cups that you'll get at restaurants that you put your ketchup in and everything, um, the, the, the clear see-through ones, we had those that were filled with like, I don't know, almonds and pecans and things like that that we could eat, so I took that and I ate all the nuts out of it, and then just as a stupid 10-year-old, I was like, huh, and I put it on my mouth, and I just suctioned and took it away after the pressure was gone. And I looked in the mirror, and I just had like a, like a hickey on my chin. And I really didn't know how to explain that to somebody. Like, I, you know, when, I, when they would see me two days later at school, like, how do you explain I gave myself a hickey? I don't really know, but um, so I just decided to make up a story on how I was going to explain it, that it wasn't going to be a hickey. What actually happened was I was, um, you know, walking down the sidewalk, and I tripped and hit my chin on the sidewalk, and that's how that got there. That's what that is. Um, I don't know if anyone really believed that, but, but the point is I was caught in a lie, and I had to figure out how to make it come to be. Um, the details of it just didn't make sense. Perhaps you've on a more serious note, heard of the girl in Alabama who was supposedly abducted a couple months ago. Um, she, she said that she, um, she was abducted and she got away and just happened to come out in the neighborhood of her house. And um, apparently they, um, you know, a lot of publicity happened around it. Apparently they found some pretty suspicious Google searches on her phone that actually make it seem more like she staged the whole thing. Um, her story had several errors in it. And when they were stacked up against reality, something didn't pan out. Something didn't make sense. You see, the Bible is without error. That's the fact. The, the details of the story of the Bible are always going to pan out. They're always going to measure up as true. 
it, it's the, the, the text of the Bible do not contain errors in it in any way. This is super important. Uh, last week we talked about the inspiration of Scripture. Scripture is inspired by God. That is, it is literally breathed out by God. And if God is truth, if all that he is is truth, then anything he speaks is going to be full of truth. But this has historically been a doctrine that has been challenged heavily. People don't like the inerrancy of Scripture. They fight against it. We've seen it time and time again in history. It's the doctrine people attack. If Scripture is without error, then everything it says is true. But if it has occasional errors in it, then we can pick and choose what we want to believe in it. We can pick and choose what those errors are. So you don't like the Bible says homosexuality is a sin? That's okay. You can just say that that's an error and you can still call yourself a Christian. That that doesn't apply today. But it does because scripture's without error. We've seen it so many times in history. In the 20th century, the 1900s, um, there was a major battle for the inerrancy of scripture in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, the seminary I went to, uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, um, it was like in the 70s and 80s. It was an extremely liberal seminary. It was started out as a very conservative, very biblically faithful seminary. And somewhere around the 70s, um, new leadership came in, and they did not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, and just the thing tanked. And it just became this completely liberal facility. Um, I, I, I've heard that, that professors didn't even believe Jesus rose from the dead at this place that was preparing pastors to pastor local churches. Um, that was just one part of the SBC that was, that was very liberal. The whole SBC was in a lot of ways. The, maybe the individual churches weren't, but the, the, the SBC overall was. Um, at Southern specifically, um, they, the, kind of the conservative people in the, the Southern Baptist Convention learned of what was going on there. So they elected a president in, I think, 1993, um, Dr. Al Mohler. Al Mohler came in, and he was, um, he was aiming to get the um, seminary back conservative. And, and that started with dealing with the, with the inerrancy of Scripture. Scripture has to be without error if we're going to believe it. And the SBC and Southern Seminary are in a very healthy place today in regards to this doctrine. Um, but it's Scripture without error. So tonight we're going to do three things. Um, we're going to ask, what does it mean that Scripture is without error? Um, we're going to ask, what about the supposed contradictions in the Bible? Because a lot of people will bring that up. And then we'll just ask, why, in, why is inerrancy so important? Why is it so important that Scripture has no errors? Um, and so with that, Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Understand the Bible, God's word has been questioned from the very beginning. Scripture says here that the word of the Lord proves true every single time. It always proves true in everything. But scripture has been questioned since the very beginning. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, Everything was perfect. Adam and Eve were living in perfect fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. And what did, the, what, did the, what did Satan come and do in the Garden? He questioned God's word. He came to Adam and Eve, and he questioned what God had said. Did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree in the Garden? Did, did God really say that? Is his word really true? Are you really going to die if you eat that fruit? What did Satan accuse God of? of not being truthful. He said there was error in God's word. He said that God's word could not be trusted. And ever since, he has been doing the same thing with everyone else. 
The biggest way he does this is to just call into question the words of the Bible. The Bible has no errors. The Bible has no errors, big or small. It, it is not wrong. It is not uh, untrue in the big things like the resurrection of Christ. And it's not wrong in the tiny little details in the, in the random passage that, you, that, that we never read in Second Chronicles. It, it's all true. The Bible never affirms anything false, and the Bible never contradicts. I was going to try to put this quote up on the screen, but we had a glitch with the screen. But um, theologian David Dockery defines the inerrancy of Scripture like this. When all facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. The Bible in its original writings, properly interpreted in light of which the culture and communication means had developed by the time of its composition, will be completely true and therefore not false in all that it affirms to the degree of precision intended by the author in all matters relating to God and his creation. That's what inerrancy is. Everything in there is true. And, and, and notice in that it says it's the original manuscripts that are, in, that are inerrant. We talked about that a little bit last week, that the, the actual thing that is inspired is the original manuscript that was written by John and Paul and Moses and all of those. The original manuscripts are inerrant. Remember, um, that, that, that doesn't make us lose confidence in our English translations, um, but, but translations may translate words from the Hebrew and Greek that don't fully capture what, what that word was because we don't have a word for it in English. Um, so this is why when I'm preaching, I can read a verse and I can say, you know, the word here um, actually reads better in the New American Standard. Let me read you that one. Or, or I like how the New Living Translation puts this. Let, let me read that. Because w when I've done that, I've read and studied the other translations and I've seen what's been said in the original language to know this is what the best reading of this verse is, the, the inerrant word. That's not my opinion. That's the clear translation in English. This does not mean you should lose, um, you, you should doubt your English translations. Remember, they're very good and very trustworthy. There's nothing that we're talking about when I say that, that, um, that when, when I say what I just did, that's going to make you not be able to read your Bible and know what God is saying. A lot of this is really just splitting hairs. Um, but critics of the Bible love to split hairs to discredit the Bible. The reality is, we know what 99% of the words of the original manuscripts were. Where we aren't certain, your Bible usually says something, like, you may see in the footnotes, um, I don't know if your Bible does it, but um, uh, Psalm 18, um, I'm trying to find where this is. Mine has a footnote somewhere um, for, for number two. I'm scanning, trying to find it really quick. Um, well, I can't find it, but, but somewhere in Psalm 18, there's a word used that, that could mean blameless, it says in the footnotes, or blameless. Um, so, so there it's trying to tell us, uh, based on the manuscripts originally, it may mean this word or it may mean blameless. But, but the point is, it's there. Um, because it's the Bible, it's completely inerrant. Some people like to take the position that, um, that there's limited inerrancy, that only the really important stuff is inerrant. The stuff that relates to doctrine and practice, that's what we can know for certain is inerrant in the Bible. But minor historical details might, not be, might, might, might have some error in it. You know, I mean, does it really matter if it says that, you know, there was 
80 people in the court when Paul was preaching when there was probably actually 85. Does it really matter? Yes, it does. There, um, because what they'll do is there, there appears to be a lot of contradictions in various stories, which we're going to look at in a minute, and they'll easily use that to say, if God really inspired this book, apparently there's error in God because he couldn't get the details right. But it's very easy when you look at those contradictions to harmonize them and see how they work. We'll do that in just a minute. The biblical view of inerrancy in Scripture is full inerrancy. Every word is inerrant. There are no errors in any of the words of the book. Why does this matter? Because if only the important stuff is inerrant, people will pick and choose what is important. If, if I think, um, you know, if I think the... Um, you know, the atonement of Jesus is important. I'll say that's what's inerrant. But if someone else thinks, um, you know, for, forget the atonement, um, uh, taking care of, of, of poor people is what is important, that'll be what's inerrant. Um, but, if, but if I think that, um, you know, how women dress in church is important, that's what's inerrant. So you see people have different opinions on what is important. So everybody's going to have their own idea in the pot there, and it's just going to get confusing. Every word is inerrant. And it... it Frankly, if it wasn't, it would mean God got some things wrong. When I would, um, when I would do work in school, sometimes I wouldn't spend time handling every tiny detail of it. Um, I've only got so much time in the day, so I'm just going to get the assignment done. I'm going to do a good job, but I know there's probably going to be a few things in it that aren't completely right. That's okay as long as I get a good grade. So I'd turn in a paper, and uh, maybe there's a couple things off, but, but I know I'm going to get a good grade on this. So I would get an A but I wouldn't get a 100. God's not like that. He gets a 100. His errors, there, there are no errors in his essay, if you will. What this does not mean, inerrancy of scripture does not mean that the Bible has to adhere to all rules of grammar. Grammar is different in Hebrew and Greek. It's, it's not going to translate the same in English. It does not mean that, that someone in the Bible can't use a figure of speech. So, you know, if someone in the Bible says, the sun rose... Well, obviously, we know the sun doesn't literally rise. I mean, the earth rotates and the sun, you know, comes up in the sky and goes down. Like, we're not talking about that. That's not an error. That's just figures of speech. It doesn't mean writers um, are required to use all the technical language of modern science. It doesn't even mean that they require the exact quotation of Old Testament passages in the New Testament because you'll see, especially in the book of Hebrews, sometimes the writers quote the Old Testament and the quotation's not right. I mean, you, you read the verse and it's just completely different words. But it's just as if I translated into something from Spanish to English, it wouldn't read right exactly. Same with Hebrew and Greek. When they're quoting the Old Testament into the New Testament, sometimes it doesn't translate exactly the same. It doesn't require that every detail of an account of a story is mentioned. So if Jesus in one gospel is mentioned to heal two blind men at a certain gate, and in another gospel it's only mentioned that one of them was healed, that doesn't mean the second one wasn't there. That just means that for whatever purpose, that gospel only mentioned one of them. So what about... What about various contradictions? Let's deal with that. Well, first, let's deal with paradoxes. I've mentioned paradoxes several times, but a paradox is two truths that seem to contradict on a surface level, but they are both true. So if I were to say to you, I love all the women of our church, and if I were to say to you, I love Adrian Frazier only, what would you assume? Either I'm lying in one of those two statements or the word love does not mean the same thing in both statements, right? 
So I'm not saying that I love all women in our church the way I love Adrian. I'm saying that I, I love all women in our church generally. I love Adrian in a particular way where she's my wife. It's possible for both statements to be true. And so in the Bible, there's a lot of things like that where statements don't seem to make sense together, but they do, like the Trinity, like God is one God and three persons, like the, um, Jesus was fully God and fully man, and like inspiration, God inspired the words, but man wrote them down. None of these are contradictions. They're examples of how God is bigger than we are. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I don't want to worship a God that I can completely understand in every single detail. I don't want to worship a God that's so dumbed down that I can grasp every single bit of knowledge about him. I want to worship a God that's higher than me that I can't wrap my mind fully around. That's the God that we have. But what about contradictions? So, so something skeptics will do with the Bible is they'll notice all kinds of contradictions in it. And they'll say, look, there's a mistake in the Bible. You can't trust the whole thing. I'll give you a few examples of these. Um, so um, we're going to look at, turn to the New Testament. Go to Matthew 28. And then while you're doing that, flip over to um, Mark 16. Hold your spot in both of them. And as well, flip to Luke chapter 24. Hold your spot there as well. All right, so each of these chapters, you have the account of the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now on the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. All right, in Matthew's account, who went to the tomb? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. We don't know if that's Mary, the mother of Jesus, or another woman named Mary. It was a pretty common name, apparently. Matthew says two people went to the tomb, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Look at Mark 16. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Who does Mark say came to the tomb? Three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Look at Luke. Luke 24. Um, where does it actually list? I think the women are listed later on, verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles that they had seen at the, at the tomb. Okay, so according to this, Mary Magdalene was there, Mary the mother of James, which maybe is the other Mary. Joanna, Salome is not mentioned, but there are other women that were there. So we don't know if maybe there were 20 of them. I, I don't know. If you read John 21, we won't flip there, but John 20, no, John 20, 20, not 21, Mary Magdalene's the only one that goes. So people will look at this and they'll say, God made a mistake. Because apparently, um, each gospel writer says that different women went to the tomb on Easter morning. Which one is it? 
Well, two things. First of all, none of them explicitly say the other ones were not there, right? So when John says that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, he does not say, but she was the only one. It doesn't say that. But secondly, um, the, the gospel writers choose to mention these people. They don't say that they're the only people there. There could be other people. For whatever reason, they list the ones that they do. But secondly, all that aside, they all still say there was a resurrection, that they all got the detail of the story right. If they shared the exact same details word for word, what would we expect? Well, if they do that in a court of law, if you have a court case going on and every witness that comes to the stand tells the exact same story word for word without fail, what do you assume about that? They got together ahead of time and said, all right, what's the story going to be? Let's do this. That's not what happens. They each individually write their own stories, and each one of them attests to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Or how about the ordering of events in the Gospels? We won't look at these exactly, but uh, a lot of the Gospel contradictions that people point out are things that, um, that they don't understand how the how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John work. They're, they're not chronological stories necessarily. The gospel writers have taken the stories of the life of Jesus and they have put it in a particular order to make a point. So John, for example, features the cleansing of the temple that happens in Passion Week at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So John has Jesus cleanse the temple like at the very beginning of his ministry. So one of two things. <coughs> Either he did it twice or John, for some reason, placed it at the beginning to make a point. In the, I think it's Matthew and Mark, in one of them, Jesus curses the fig tree in Jerusalem before he enters the temple, and the other one, he does it the next day. Which one is it? Well, they're making a point in what they're saying. You've got to read them deeper to know. Um, Jesus preaches a sermon in Nazareth in his hometown. In Luke's gospel, it is at the very beginning of his ministry. In Matthew, it's in the very middle of his ministry. Which was it? That's not a contradiction. Luke is doing that to show that the sermon Jesus preaches is going to be exactly everything that his ministry is about in the gospel of Luke. These are not contradictions. The gospels arrange their stories in order in which they're making these points. Same way that sometimes a movie, when you're watching it, will tell the story out of order for dramatic effect. They'll begin with a scene that's near the end of the story, and then they'll jump back. They aren't contradictions. They're just good storytelling. Minor details. What about minor details? So are, are those contradictions? Um, I, I don't have an example to give you right now, but there are some things in the Bible that people point to and say these are minor details that are contradictions. Um, and the temptation when you see that is to think, does it matter? Because it feels like just splitting hairs. Like, really? Why, why are we worried about that? I mean, there's sick people out there. We need to go take care of them. There's hungry people. Let's go feed them. Does it matter that these tiny details don't line up? Well, we believe all of Scripture is inerrant. So, yes, that includes those minor details. Um, honestly, most of them can be answered very simply with a Google search or by taking time to simply read the passages a little deeper. Contradictions are leveled against the Bible all the time, and they never that they never remain because God's word is truth and it does not fail. Every single time there's an answer for these things. Why does all this matter? Because a lot of this stuff tonight's really technical. Why does it all matter? Well, we have to align with scripture and not the other way around. We live in a day that doesn't know what truth is. 
there's a common phrase today that people say, live your truth. I don't know what that means, because all I know that exists is the truth, not, not your truth and your truth and your truth and your truth. It's, it's, it's one truth. There's one truth, and that's it. Truth is not changeable. There's a difference between truth and preference, though, right? So truth is a hamburger is a piece of beef in between two pieces of bread. That's what a hamburger is. That's truth. A preference is I prefer pickle, onion, and ketchup on my hamburger. Do not put mustard on it, right? That's a preference. That's not a truth, but that's what our society does. They take your preferences, and they make that your truth that you live by. You live by your preferences, and that is truth. But that's not how truth works. When I say the word hamburger, everyone knows what I'm talking about. It's a piece of beef between two pieces of bread. Nobody pictures a slice of pizza when I say hamburger because truth identifies what a hamburger is. Truth defines that concept. In John 17, 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, and he tells, his, he tells the Lord, Sanctify these people in truth. Your word is truth. Your word defines what truth is. It does not change. So that means we have to. We have to change when Scripture confronts us. We have to change when the words of Scripture pierce our heart like a scalpel. We have to change because God's word does not budge. Our day wants Scripture to change to conform to their thoughts and ways. But it's the other way around. We change in light of God's word. The, the, the Bible does not change to fit our current cultural moment. We change to fit it. This applies to church people as well because the culture wants God's word to be changed um, to, to you know, fit our cultural narrative that you, know, you can choose your own gender and things like that. But church people usually don't want that. But church people often don't want scripture to change them. They're content to hear God's word preached and often they will even enjoy it. But they won't change in life. As you read your Bible, and as you learn from your Sunday school teacher, and as you hear me preach, and as you take in God's word, you must change in light of what you hear. You must change because that's what God's word does. In a few weeks, we'll talk about the transformative power of scripture, how it changes you. You're, th this is not a spiritual buffet, a, a spiritual golden corral where you just get to take what, from the Bible what you want and leave the rest for somebody else. No, you're at a spiritual gym when you read the Bible, and you should be growing and changing in light of the exercise you're doing in his word. If you're not growing, it's evidence that you're not doing the exercise right. And, and as Psalm 18 verse 30 said, when I flipped to the Gospels, I lost my place. Um, so let me get back there. Um, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Second part of the verse, he is a shield for all who those who take refuge in him. He can be that shield and that refuge for us because he does not, it does not change. It's a solid refuge for us to, to take shelter in. That's what his word is. God never lies. And his word never lies. And we can trust him. That's what the second half of the verse says. His, because his word proves true, we can get under his word and, and shield ourselves and be protected because it does not change and it does not budge. His word protects you from the lies of the world. His word protects you from the lies you tell yourself. You know, things like, I'm worthless. No, you're made in God's image and he did not spare his own son for you. 
you know, I, like, I, I, I can't share my faith with others. I, like, what if they ask me, you know, if Adam and Eve had a belly button? I, I, just, can't, I just can't do it. What if they ask me where dinosaurs are in the Bible? I, I just can't share my faith. No, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says that you'll receive the Holy Spirit and he'll give you power. And it, it says in Matthew 24 that, that when, when those moments come, God will give you the words to say. You know, when, when the lie tells you, you know, I, I, I should just skip church today. It'll be fun. Um, you know, Hebrews 10 tells you to actually gather together so that you may um, build up one another um, for, for love and good works to go out and be disciples of Jesus in the world. That's what scripture does. It confronts you and changes you. You must know God's word enough that you can fight the lies that the world tells you and that you tell yourself. It's not a passive fighting. It's a shield. It's a shield. Think of a Think of a soldier in battle where, you, where he has a shield and he has a sword. The sword fights off the enemy. The shield protects him from getting hit by another sword. It's a shield. That's what a shield is for. It's for battle. It's for battle. You take it into battle to block the lies of the world, the lies of the flesh, and the lies of the devil. And as you do that, he will sanctify you using his word. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We set our mind on the word, we read the word, we study it, we learn it, we take it in, and we, we, we don't let the lies of the world conform us to itself, and God renews us and transforms us into himself. This book has the power in it to change us and to conform us to transformation. That's what the Christian life is. We are transferred out of the world and into God's kingdom, spiritually speaking, and we are, but we're still in the world physically right now. God does not instantly spiritually change everything about us. He does it piece by piece. Um, wait, I said that wrong. God changes us from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of his beloved son instantly, spiritually speaking. He does it piece by piece physically. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, one degree at a time. It's like a thermostat. If I, if I walked over there to that thermostat that's behind the door and I push the down button, it's going to go 74, 73, 72, 71. I'm slowly changing the temperature of the room one button at a time. And as we get into God's word, his inerrant word that does not change, we slowly, one degree at a time, transform from our old self into our new self. And the lies of the world that, it, that the world wants to conform you to their image, the lies they tell you to try to do that, God's word will transform you and renew your mind out of that. You must be in it, and you must learn it, and you must know it. Because we're so drawn to the entertainment and the things of this world, yet they change constantly. God's word never changes, and there's no error in it. So why do we keep going to the lies and the liars of the world when we have the fountain of all truth in God's word? Where no error is found whatsoever. So tonight, turn to his inerrant word and do that each day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it's a, it's a sure foundation that we can stand on, Lord. It's a solid rock, and it's a refuge. And we know that because your word is truth, and you do not lie. There's no error in your word. 
And so, Lord, I pray that we would turn to it and hide in that refuge. And I pray that it would define our lives, transform us, make us new. May your word be what we turn to when we wake up and when we go to bed. May we write it on our hearts. May we memorize it. May we read it until it gets in us. And Lord, would you give us that refuge more and more from the lies of the world and from the lies that we tell ourselves and help us trust more and more that your word is secure, safe, and true. In Jesus' name, amen.